You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. This is Rintoul and Sermon. Scott Rintoul on vacation for a couple of weeks. Jamie Dodd filling his shoes in the co-host chair today and for the majority of the rest of the two weeks. Sorry about that. I lost internet connection, Jamie. It's never a dull moment when you work from home, I tell you. No. Absolutely not. No, we're due for like one or two of those a week, right? So we got one out of the way early here. Hopefully, hopefully that's our only such right? mishap for the rest of the week. We'll see. Yeah, because you're guaranteed at least one per week. So yes, hopefully we don't have another one. NFL season is right around the corner. Training camps are in full swing. CFL season, I should say, is even more right around the corner. Jamie, it's starting on Thursday. Oh, yeah. I can't believe it. It's it's weird because we've like you know we talk about training camps and stuff, but there's been no preseason games. It's just right into game one uh, Thursday night in Winnipeg it's supposed to be a sellout uh, stadium it's the first game since they won the Grey Cup a couple of years ago they're hosting the Hamilton Tiger Cats the rematch of that game and then of course the Lions play Saskatchewan on Friday and the Stampeders are home to Toronto on Saturday I believe and they hope to pack that stadium as well it's it's it seems like a summer tradition is finally here if I can put it in the right terms yeah, I think that's fair to say. Obviously, a little later than normal for understandable uh, circumstances. But, I mean, look, I know you're a bigger CFL fan than I am. I, I, I'm not a hater of the league mm-hmm. by any stretch, like some people are. But, I mean, I'm excited to see it get back on, right? To have just another sporting option in the summer when it's, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night for you to turn on. I'm really mm-hmm. looking forward to it. Well, considering the Olympics is rolling to an end at this end of this weekend, Jamie, yes, we need it because it's something to talk about as well. Yes, uh, but exactly. I am I'm super excited. I'm it really sucked that we didn't have it last year and it would have been catastrophic for the league if it wasn't this season as well. But getting back to the NFL. <laughs> so the NFL Hard Knocks, have you ever watched any of those? I have a little bit, yeah. Okay. I've actually never watched any just because in the past I never had HBO and you couldn't really get the, I guess you could stream it. I'm sure legally I could try to find and, st- and stream them, but I've never watched it before, but they came out with the trailer today for the newest Hard Knocks and it's the Dallas Cowboys. Did you see this at all? I have not seen it yet. Okay. Well, it starts off with America's team. Of course it's America's team. The comeback season begins. Don't, don't, don't. I'm a Cowboys fan. I have no desire to watch this, even though I have HBO right now, because I don't want to hear Jerry Jones and Mike McCarthy speak probably for more than they're going to, they're going to on this. I think it's, it'll be a freaking spectacle. Like the comeback season begins. I guess we'll see, you know, a healthy Dak Prescott can do, but I mean, it's like, it's to me, it's just, it's so much show. And it's just something that I have no desire to watch. So I understand you as a Cowboys fan don't Mm -hmm. want to see your team put in these potentially embarrassing and kind of compromising (laughs) situations that get broadcast everywhere. But as a a rest of the NFL fan, I mean, how could you not want to watch the Cowboys in training camp, right? That team, all of the dysfunction and the drama that follows them around and the delusions of grandeur of being America's team, they're the perfect team to put under the microscope like this. I'm just going to be more embarrassed to be a fan than I already am, I think, after and watching that and seeing some of, the, some of the stuff that's going to come out of it. Well, the good news is, or bad news from your perspective maybe, is you know everyone will make you well aware of the most embarrassing, oh, yes. painful, and awkward moments, right? You know you won't be able to escape those. You will be, Scotty will be telling, them, telling you about them, I'll be telling you about them, you'll be seeing them on social media, so... Really, whether you watch or not, I mean, you're going to learn some unfortunate things probably about your Cowboys here. I probably will, yes. Enjoyable. And then it'll just, you know, the comeback season begins. It'll just end at another disappointment for America's team. We're going to be joined by Doug Farrar momentarily, NFL editor, USA Today Sports Media Group. 
Were you on? It was came down when you were on the air last week, right? That Aaron Rodgers was reporting to camp. I yes. can't remember which day it was. Was it the weekend or the well, week? Well, it was okay. actually. I think it was on Wednesday, which was free agent frenzy. Oh, so you know, and any other day it would have been this massive story, and we're right in the middle of breaking down all the trades and signings that are happening in the NHL. So we we didn't actually get. We got to it a little bit on Thursday, but mm-hmm. for such a massive story, it somehow flew under the radar given everything that was happening in the NHL. Okay, so I have to take the L on this one. I do. All right. I was pretty adamant that he was not going to play. I just thought he'd stick to his guns. It sounded like from everything that he said, like there was such a big grudge and there's no way you could see him in a Packers uniform. I, um, I'm wrong. I'm not going to lie. I have been wrong. We'll ask Doug Farrar if he was wrong, too, in Aaron Rodgers reporting to training camp. We're joined now with Doug Farrar, NFL editor for USA Today Sports Media Group. Doug, good morning. Good afternoon. How are you? Good morning here. Uh, good afternoon, most everywhere else, including Green Bay. And how are you guys? We're doing pretty good, thank you. Okay, the, so the biggest story coming from last week. I was on vacation last week, but I did hear about it uh, as I did try and stay away from too much social media. But obviously, Aaron Rodgers back with the Packers. Honestly, I thought that grudge, he'd force himself out one way or another, not playing this season or a trade. Were you surprised your feelings when he showed up to start training camp? Well, the longer it went along, I mean, the Packers weren't going to buzz. They weren't just going to go with Jordan Love and, and deal Aaron Rodgers for however many picks. And if that was going to happen, it was most likely going to happen before the draft. And for whatever reason, be it Denver, be it any other team, the Packers didn't get the return they wanted, which is you know obviously X number of first-round picks, X number of players. Um, so at that point, I mean, post-draft, this is a team that's gone 13 and three the last two seasons each. Mm -hmm. So they're not rebuilding yet. (laughs) Obviously when Aaron Rodgers leaves, they will be rebuilding. Um, You know, I think what happened in in the, the larger sort of abstract is that they, they had a pin in Jordan love and they said, this is our guy. And I honestly think, you know, last year, obviously very limited, no preseason, very little off season, it took them a while to get a beat on kind of where Jordan Love is. And I'm not playing Adam Schefter here and doing insider reports, but based on the tape I've watched, it wouldn't surprise me at all. If they, the Packers have determined that Jordan Love is more of a developmental guy than they thought. And to go from maybe the best pure passer in NFL history to a guy who's maybe at more of a Jalen Hurts level is a rather substantial drop off for a team that, in any given season is one or two weird plays away from going to the Super Bowl and a couple other weird plays from maybe winning it. So I think in the end it was, okay, we're not at that point yet where we're just going to, okay, here, you know, now we're going to be the Packers in the seventies for a couple of years and, and build it all back up. Um, this, and, and they gave Rogers enough of a deal where he can go sort of shoot his own shot um, after the 2022 season and, you know, maybe they trade him before the 2022 draft, but it became clear once the first round of the draft, you know, once the Broncos selected Patrick Sertan, you knew Aaron Rodgers wasn't going anywhere. So not a huge surprise. I heard, I think it was ESPN's Dan Orlovsky mentioned yesterday that he sees this Packers roster as championship caliber, but it's not a championship team. You mentioned their record over the last couple of seasons, 13-3, and three, a couple plays away from the Super Bowl. 
How do you see this Packers roster shaping up right now, not having seen any preseason games? Like, are they one of the favorites coming out of the NFC? Oh, without question. Um, on offense, you've got a, a top-two quarterback. You've got a great offensive line. You've got the best receiver of the NFL in Devontae Adams. Um, when they bracket Adams and his numbers kind of go down against, you know, two high safeties as opposed to one high, you've got, you know, some – some secondary and tertiary targets who are good enough, certainly with that quarterback throwing to them. Uh, you've got Darnell Savage, who's a, a, an ascending safety. Jair Alexander is one of the two or three best cornerbacks in the league. Um, I would expect Zadarius Smith to bounce back from kind of an injury-plagued season. They don't really have any linebackers, but they played like 50% dime last year, so it didn't matter. They have a new defensive coordinator. We'll see how that goes. Um, they are absolutely – you know, they've got one of the best rosters in the league, especially on offense. And if everything goes right with Joe Barry, their new DC, I mean, they win 13, 14 games and, and then they're right back in it. So yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any question they're a contender. I also think there is absolutely no way they would be a contender without Aaron Rodgers. So that, you know, going back to the, the the need for this to happen in a way that suited all parties involved so that Rodgers would not only show up, but buy in because Rodgers was going to show up getting into buy-in was the real difficult part. And I guess we'll just kind of see how that goes. Doug over in the AFC, probably the biggest piece of news from camps around the NFL, other than Aaron Rodgers this week is the injury to Carson Wentz in Indianapolis and he'll need surgery on his foot out for about five to 12 weeks. And then we hear today that one of their star offensive linemen, Quinton Nelson, he's going to need that exact same surgery. It sounds like, and he's going to have another which, five to 12 week, uh, a timeline, which is a much sorry, go ahead. story in my opinion. No, I'm sorry. Right, well, I was just going to ask you which, which injury is, is more difficult for them to overcome there in Indianapolis. Nelson, without question. We don't know. I mean, Carson Wentz could go out there and sort of, forgive me, vomit the ball over the field as he did with the Eagles last year. And, you know, then they try and get Nick Foles, you know, if they'd go that route with this familiar Frank Reich. Well, Nick Foles is buried so far down on the Bears quarterback depth chart that you can't even see him. He's, you know, anytime you're behind Andy Dalton and a first round guy who hasn't played yet, it's kind of an issue. They have had, they've been in quarterback purgatory since the second Andrew Luck did his bombshell retirement. And, as great as Chris Ballard is, you know, their GM is putting, you know, putting a roster together and, and getting everything working. That quarterback position has always been a problem. And I, I think it was going to continue to be one, even if Wentz was in there. Now they don't have a single guy who's ever taken an NFL snap. And if you look at their first five weeks, it's uh, let's see, they have the Seahawks, they have the Rams, they go to Tennessee they go to Miami, they go to Baltimore. That's four playoff teams and a team in Miami who a lot of people, including me, believe is going to be a playoff team this year. They can come out of this 1-4 and four or 0-5. Oh and, and I don't care if it's a 17-game schedule instead of a 16-game schedule. That's not good. Quentin Nelson is the best guard in the NFL. He might be the best offensive lineman in the NFL. He is, without question, the Colts' best player. And this is a very, you know, it's an aggressive passing game. It's a lot of deep drops. It's a lot of running. You know, Jonathan Taylor and Naheem Hines and all those guys, Quentin Nelson drives that offense. It's a big problem. And they're saying, you know, five to 11 weeks, and he misses the first couple of weeks, but that extends itself. I think 
losing Nelson is 10 times the hit that losing Wentz is. The only problem with Wentz is we don't really have anyone behind him who's ever done anything. So that's the drop-off there. The drop-off with Nelson is there simply isn't anyone else in the NFL who plays guard the way he plays guard. Well, and you think so often, Doug, you know, if a team loses its starting quarterback, and especially in a situation where they don't have a proven backup like this, you know, the immediate thought is, okay, well, we have Jonathan Taylor, we have an offensive line we like, we're just going to have to run the ball a whole lot more than we were expecting to. But, you know, now, as you say, with the guy who makes that possible, Quinton Nelson, also on the sideline, I, I mean, what is the game plan for Indianapolis? How do they possibly adjust and have some semblance of a functional offense with those two pieces out? Well, they lost Costanza, their left tackle at retirement. I believe they're, I think, I'm not, I'd have to look it up. I think they're trying to rock it with Eric Fisher, who was cut by the Chiefs after, you know, being injured. So uh, Fisher's a good, I would say good, not great player when he's healthy. Um, you know, yeah, it's an issue. And you can see all you want about Frank Reich and Carson Wentz. And let's say when Wentz comes back, even if he's the good version, um, you know, this is a guy who he's not a pocket passer. He's not a, a timing and rhythm sort of sustainability guy. There's a lot of explosive plays that come out of second reaction and third reaction. And so the play breaks down. So we're going to do this. Even when Carson Wentz comes back, if he's limited in mobility with his foot, asking him to stay in the pocket and be sort of Philip Rivers, that's not who Carson Wentz is. So even, if, even when they get him back, if he's limited at all in mobility, that's still a problem because it goes against what makes him from a stylistic standpoint, you know, anything near what he is when he's at his apex a couple of years ago when he was almost the MVP before he got hurt, you know, that kind of thing. You watch that season. He's running around a lot, both when the play breaks down and as it's designed by his coaches. So again, when Wentz does get in there, we have absolutely no clue what kind of quarterback he's going to be. We're speaking with Doug Farrar, NFL editor for USA Today Sports Media Group. Doug, Chris Mortensen did tweet out yesterday after the whole Nick Foles comments came out about, ah, Frank Reich's the greatest coach I've ever played for, paraphrasing there. He said, right now the Colts are not going to trade for Foles or Minshew or Marcus Mariota at this time. Things made come a little differently with Quentin Nelson now injured but I heard Nick Foles I'm thinking to myself I'm like he's a third string quarterback for a reason but is there any chance if he was reunited with Frank Wright uh, his OC from when they won the Super Bowl that it could at least tread water for the Colts yeah a couple things um he's not just the third string quarterback he's a third string quarterback from the, for the Bears who have a, not exactly a limited quarterback history. <laughs> you have to go back to like World War II, you know, to, to point it when it was working out. Um, I think Frank Reich has proven, and that's why he became a head coach. I remember talking to him uh, during media day, the Super Bowl, the Eagles won, and I talked to him for about 20 minutes when he was the Eagles OC, and I'm like, that guy's a head coach. I, I don't know when it's going to happen, but he's a head coach, and he, I think he's proven that. Um he knows he's one of those rare people who he's a, he's a QB whisperer like Andy Reid or Bruce Arians or, or what have you. Um, but there's only so much chicken salad you can make. And I think that's what they're left with. I, I will tell you one name that would fascinate me in that offense. And it's a name you mentioned that's Gardner Minshew. I think with Marcus Marietta, we kind of know what he is. He's not bad. He's not great. He's sort of there. 
I, you know, is he an upgrade over a guy like Jacoby Brissett? Yeah, sure, but not much. Minshew last year was in a horrible offense that didn't give him play action or pre-snap motion, which he benefited from when they did. He's very mobile. Um, he can do design runs. He can run boot. He played in an air raid offense under Mike Leach, but he can stand back there, seven-step drop, and, you know, bang it out 40 yards downfield with some really precise deep throws. I think Gardner Minshew has a lot potentially on the table for another NFL team, and obviously won't be the Jaguars unless Trevor Lawrence gets hurt. And, you know, of course, we don't want that to happen. But I think a guy like Minshew, I mean, I wrote a piece a couple months ago about how Minshew would be an ideal backup for Seattle, given what he can do and kind of what Seattle's offense has been, and it's going to be different this year. But, you know, if if they could float a second or third round pick for Minshew uh, and Chris Dodder could get away with it, that's something I would personally find intriguing. Now, I don't know if, if Urban Meyer would be into that. He's like, well, I don't know where Lawrence is. I, if he gets hurt, I still have Minshew. I don't know how Urban Meyer feels about Minshew. I don't know where that stands. But of all the potentially available quarterbacks, and maybe I should just rewrite my Gardner Minshew piece about Seattle for Indianapolis, um, that would intrigue me because I think there's more to Gardner Minshew than the mullet and the, the mustache and the jorts and the whole Florida man thing. The guy's a good quarterback, and he could be great in the right system. Yeah, and that's what I was thinking about the fact, like, would Urban Meyer want to get, not give away, but trade Gardner Minshew, considering not sure how Trevor Lawrence can adjust to the NFL game. We assume that he'll be great and do great things, but does he get injured? I look at um, Marcus Mariota. Yeah, you say you know what he is, but also if Derek Carr gets injured, he has to come in. Like I feel that the value of a backup quarterback is more important than ever with injuries to the starting quarterbacks. Oh, it's huge. The other complication with a Minshew to Indianapolis trade is it uh, in the division. Mm-hmm. That's an AFC South to AFC South trade. And, you know, it's not like Jacksonville is going to be competing for anything this year. But, you know, that, that could be a problem. Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, the, the greatest quarterback of all time was a backup quarterback until uh, Mo Lewis <laughs> pretty much killed Drew Bledsoe on the field and, and, you know, wham, instant Tom Brady. So, yeah, it is important. Um, it is the most important position in the game. It's more important than it's ever been before. And that's why even if Quentin Nelson was healthy, you, you got the Colts who they've got everything else pretty much set on their roster. But if you don't have a quarterback, you're just not going to go very far. The, the, the 2000 Buccaneers and the two, or 2000 Ravens, 2002 Buccaneers, that sort of average quarterback with a historically great defense. Well, how many teams since then have won a Super Bowl with that formula? I can name one. The 2015 Broncos with that Von Miller-led defense and sort of zombie Peyton Manning, that's the only team that's done it since then. You really, I mean, that's not a paradigm that works in today's NFL unless your defense is just historically mauling everyone over and over and and they just can't be stopped. Uh, so, yeah, the quarterback is – it's more important than it's ever been. So your backup guy, yeah, I would, I would totally agree. More important as well. Doug, a little closer to home here, and I know close to home for you as well in Seattle. One of the big storylines of the offseason is the new offensive coordinator, Shane Waldron, and talk and speculation about some of the changes he might make to that offense. 
Now, as someone, and I know this is you, who, who, who can appreciate a well-designed, intelligent NFL offense, what's the one thing you're hoping that Waldron will change about how Seattle does business on that side of the ball? Yes, I appreciate a well-designed offense because I see it so rarely. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a problem. Well, I mean, when Tyler Lockett, who never says boo to a goose, is talking about how predictable Brian Schottenheimer's offense was, that was the writing on the wall. Um, I've heard a few things. Now, we don't know with Waldron how much of Sean McVay's offense he's going to bring over. So the different kinds of jet motions and, you know, wide zone and, you know, reduced splits with 12 personnel and blah, blah, blah. Um, I have heard a lot more quick tempo, which Russell Wilson has wanted for a long time. I've heard about more pre-snap motion, which Wilson has benefited from and hasn't always gotten. Because with Schottenheimer, it was, you know, pretty much line up and go beat your guy. We would assume that Walden will have more elevated route concepts to help um, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett get open. And Dwayne Eskridge, when he's healthy, I think Eskridge could be a really, really good slot receiver with some outside potential. Um, you know, if they, it's funny because the one thing I'm looking forward to more than anything else coming into this season is what Matthew Stafford looks like in Sean McVay's offense. And funny, I was talking to a friend of mine about this this morning. Well, what about what Russell Wilson in Sean McVay's offense? What if we get that? Is that even better than Matthew Stafford in Sean McVay's offense? So. The, the first question is, what will that offense look like? I think it will be different. The second question, though, is how much of that sort of throwing the ball OMG anarchy will Pete Carroll allow? Because he, we know this. He's always wanted balance. He doesn't – and it's typical of most defensive head coaches, defensive-minded head coaches. They view something – they view offense as something to be controlled as opposed to something that can be exploited for kind of explosive play use. So, you know, they're a bit betwixt and between there. The other thing they have to look at is their defense kind of fell off the back of a, of a truck last season. That defense is not great. The LOB is gone. So if they want to win 11, 12 games, they may have to throw the ball 40 times a week. And that's just the way it is. And I'll, it'll be interesting to see. I know their defense had a bit of an uptick later on in the season, as the offense kind of fell apart, which is very Seattle. Uh, but if that defense is below average, and I think it could be, I mean, you're going to have to throw the ball to win games, and you're going to have to put the ball in Russell Wilson's hand. You're going to have to let him make plays. You're going to have to get him involved in the game plan. You're going to have to, you know, design routes that give his receivers even more of a chance to get open. And it's not like DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett need a lot of help in that regard. Um, you know, this, if Seattle wants to get anywhere near a Super Bowl, which they haven't in a long time, somebody in that building is going to have to redefine this concept of the passing game. And I'm not going to be specific, but that somebody is named Pete Carroll. <laughs> uh, just bouncing around the league a little bit here, Doug, while we have you, I, I saw you were tweeting out some, some clips of Kyle Pitts doing his thing at Atlanta Falcons training camp and also Ugh. just some optimism for the Atlanta Falcons as well in general. What do you expect Kyle Pitts to bring to that offense immediately? And why are you maybe a little higher on the Falcons than some people around the league? Well, they're what, four and 12. They play, I mean, it's, you know, the Falcons, the lost games in these agonizing fashions. They looked for the most part like a 500 team um, with some iffy coaching. I think, and Julio Jones was hurt last year a lot of the time. I think he played, what, seven games? 
So, oh, they lost Julio Jones. Yeah, but they got Kyle Pitts. And if you watch Kyle Pitts in college, it wasn't just that he was such a nightmare to cover. It's his quarterback, Kyle Trask, who the Buccaneers took with this, the final pick in the second round, and I have absolutely no idea why. You hear about quarterbacks throwing guys open. Kyle Trask is a real good – he's an expert at throwing guys closed, throwing the ball too late. You know, what? because there's that little tiny window of time, and it's shorter in the NFL than it is in the NCAA where the guy is open. You obviously have to throw it before that so you can exploit the, the openness, of, you know, when that, that little moment in time. Well, I'm thinking to myself, and I wrote, I wrote about this months ago, like, well, imagine now that Matt Ryan is throwing to him. Um, you have Arthur Smith, who kind of made Ryan Tannehill a thing uh, in Tennessee. You have Dean Pease, who's the brilliant longtime defensive coordinator who, speaking of the Titans, when, when Dean left the Titans, that defense completely fell apart. So he's a defensive coordinator now. I think I don't know that they're a playoff team, but I think if we were to list the teams that could really surprise this year, I don't hear anyone talking about Atlanta. And the more I look at it, the more I'm kind of surprised by that. Doug, one quick question from our listener. We'd like to get our listener questions in. Uh, about 30 seconds left here. What do you expect of Joe Burrow in his second season? Hopefully protection. They, When <laughs> Burrow was in there before he got hurt, they led the league in zero to three-step drops, and he was still getting sacked all the time. Um, I, I mean, obviously, his connection with Jamar Chase is great. But if Joe Burrow isn't protected – Go look on YouTube for Greg Cook, Bengals quarterback in the late 60s. Bill Walsh said he was the greatest quarterback of all time. He kept getting hurt, and he was never what he could have been. I really don't want Joe Burrow to be Greg Cook part two. If Burrow's in there, he is one of the best college quarterbacks I've ever seen, and I think that all transfers to the NFL, but they've got to protect him, and we're still kind of waiting on that. Well, Doug, thank you so much for joining us today and your time. This is the first week. We have no more weeks until, what, the week before the Super Bowl that we won't have NFL football. It's a Hall of Fame game on Thursday, Cowboys and Steelers. Enjoy the game, and I'm sure we'll talk to you down the road. Yeah, what is it, Mason Rudolph versus Ben DiNucci? I'm psyched. <laughs> You're going to be watching. You're going to be watching, <laughs> Doug. Don't... Gonna be watching. Yeah, then I'm, I'm going to break it down after, which is even weirder. <laughs> awesome. Well, enjoy that. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Doug. All right, thanks. That's Doug for our NFL editor, USA Today Sports Media Group. I find, Jamie, whenever we have Doug on, I just get smarter. Like, the knowledge oh, that he no has doubt is about just it. incredible. And a, a must-follow on Twitter as well if you want to mm-hmm. get smarter about the NFL. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a quick break around the corner. We want to get your thoughts in. I teased this earlier, and some listeners did text them in, so we'll get them in. But 650-650-960-960, what Olympic sport are you captivated by that you never thought you'd be? For me, badminton, we'll hear what Jamie is. Coming up next on Rintoul and Sermon. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. This is Rintoul and Sermon, Karen Sermon, Jamie Dodd. In for the next uh, 30 minutes in Calgary, we'll turn you over to the big show. Um, at top of the hour, Vancouver, you're with us until 1 o'clock Pacific time. Jamie, busy show today. Very busy, Very busy. show today, yeah. Very we got. We still have a, uh, a couple of guests that I'm really looking forward to coming up as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'll tease those at the bottom of the hour. Uh, I tease this, though, before the break. We've got some submissions in. What Olympic sport are you captivated by in these Olympics that you didn't think you would? Now, 
the reason I came up with this is because I don't know what was on something, maybe men's volleyball. And I, I love men's volleyball. I love volleyball in general, beach and on the court. And my boyfriend turns to badminton gold medal game, the women's. I'm like, why are we watching badminton? Like, no, no offense to the people who play it, honestly. I didn't know how great the sport actually is. But it was China versus, I believe it was Indonesia. These ladies, Jamie, let me tell you, the strategy that goes into it and their ability to drop shot and then hit smashes and not only that, but dig out the birdie. Uh, yeah. When it looks like it's going to hit the ground, it was absolutely captivating to watch. Also, to the Indonesian side, they were um, the underdogs going in. They weren't ranked at all, and they were facing the number one or two Chinese side. And I'd learned going into this, a badminton gold medal had never been won by any other team other than first or second. So it was a huge upset by this Indonesian squad. The girls were so excited. But just to watch this sport, I never knew I'd be captivated by watching badminton. Well, and you think of badminton as such a leisurely activity, right? Yes. And I mean, we all probably played badminton, you know, maybe in gym class. Maybe you set up a, a net in the backyard <laughs> a couple times a summer and get the rackets out. And it's very calm. It's okay, you know, we're just kind of rallying. We're, we're, you know, we're hitting the birdie back and forth, but we're not that into it. But the, the violence of it at the Olympic mm-hmm. level, right? And the power they're able to generate in what doesn't seem like it should be a violent sport. That's what really impresses me. It is just, it's so, it's so intense. It, it, it really is fun to watch. Well, and I was like, you know, you think to yourself, okay, and I think Scott and I did this when DK Metcalf was racing in the 100 meter qualifiers. They're like, what Olympic sports could you think of yourself performing if you had to? Right. And I think you said archery um, at the time. And I think I'd said rhythmic gymnastics. I've since gone back on that because there's no way I would ever be able to do that. I'm setting the bar pretty high for yourself. (laughs) But maybe maybe I would have said badminton. Well, watching these girls, I have incredible admiration for how they're able to play because it was incredible to watch. Do you have any that you've kind of gotten a little like, okay, wow, this is pretty awesome? Well, not necessarily new this year, but I find pretty regularly with the Summer Olympics, I don't know, for whatever reason, I'm a bit more of a team sport guy than an individual sport guy. Like, I like golf, I like tennis, but Mm -hmm. they're farther down the ranks for me in my preferred sports than, you know, the big four, big five North American team sports, right? So I always find at the Olympics, the more obscure team sports that are popular elsewhere in the world, volleyball is not obscure, but I always enjoy watching volleyball, volleyball, beach and indoor. I really, really enjoy it. But then you get handball, right? Never watch handball between the intervening Mm -hmm. four years, but handball is an awesome, awesome spectator sport. Really, really enjoyable. Water polo, I think, falls into that category as Hmm. well. I mean, first of all, just imagining the athleticism and the endurance and the cardio that it takes to play water polo, how incredibly demanding a sport it is, Mm -hmm. is pretty inspiring. But for whatever reason, it's something about the team sports because you can kind of try to draw these analogies between the sports you're more familiar with. Okay, you know, when you're watching handball, you're thinking, how is this like a basketball game? When you're watching water polo, you know, okay, they're kind of getting set up up and tossed in and around uh, like they're on the power play in hockey. You can draw those analogies, but it's still a completely new experience. So I always find myself drawn to those ones in the Summer Olympics. Yeah, I I can agree with you on the volleyball. Like, I don't watch a lot of beach volleyball in general everyday, you know, life or when the circuit's being played. Uh, But I've been like, that's a go-to, everyone. Doesn't have to be Canada in it, just watching beach volleyball. The athleticism that these ladies and guys have to be able to dig balls out of the sand, not to mention 
Did you see the heat on the sand? It was like temperatures 40 degrees or whatever in the air, plus humidity. Like the sand was 124 degrees. I couldn't imagine how hot that was Incredible. and what it was like, like to play. Like watching, I think it was the Latvian Brazil match. <laughs> I, I don't know. Anyways, the men and they just looked beat by the end. Like this heat is just taking so much out of these athletes. It's crazy to watch. Uh, this uh, unsigned text in the Calgary inbox, 960-960. Mm-hmm. You can get in on the conversation, 650-650 as well. He says, the paddle sports, especially the canoe paddling, oh, the yes! synchronization of the pairs is incredible. That's true. The The way that they just motor in perfect sync, canoe paddling. For some reason, it looks more impressive almost than rowing because it's so much faster. They're moving their arms so much faster. And to do it in sync with that much power is awesome to watch. I will also say, when we talk about canoeing, now maybe I'm missing uh, a Canadian team that hasn't performed yet or hasn't gotten into it, but why do we not have more of a presence in canoeing? Like, we're Canada. We we should be dominating canoeing. It's been a huge part of our history and our culture. Where's Where are our elite canoe teams at these Olympics? That's a question I'm asking myself. I have no idea. You can call the Olympic canoeing kayaking squad ask about that um i do know we're good at rowing though the women's eight took home one yep. of the gold medals uh i have too have been captivated by canoeing and kayaking because the incredible strength that it takes i just look at these athletes and think i need to get on their training program because holy cow are they jacked and in shape uh text comes in an unseated korean team won the bronze two beating the top f- a top four team, um, another Korean team. So I got sucked into watching badminton as well. That comes in from Rob the Landscaper. This one came in and I, I'm captivated because I don't understand how the mechanics work of it. Race walking. That's from Minor yes. Matt in Abbotsford. Because your foot, you can't have your foot leave the both, ground. Both, one both. foot has to be on the okay. ground at all times, I believe. It's the way, it's the hip action. Yeah, <laughs> I don't understand the hip action. I've never seen how it actually kind of works. It's a little confusing for me. Um, one of the greatest events has to be equestrian show jumping. I, yeah, we've got I, a, a few people have texted that one in, which is a little surprising to me. Well, someone says horse dancing, and I'm like, no, come on now. I, I think I maybe I I guess maybe you could watch it out of curiosity. I feel sorry for the horses in that one. Dressage, like, yeah. yeah, they're like prancing around out there. <laughs> See, uh, my um, my wife and I have a kind of ongoing debate about this because I call it horse dancing, and she maintains yes. that the horse is not actually dancing, so it's it's inaccurate to call it that. I disagree. The horse is dancing. That's what it is. It's horse dancing. I think it's a perfectly accurate term to use for it. What was the one that they did? Was it ballet horse or ballet oh, my something goodness. back in the day? I can't even remember that. They've had some I don't weird know. ones. Horse ballet. Oh my goodness. Uh, Greg, I know you've been uh, listening to this conversation. Do you have any ones where you've like been kind of like this is an obscure sport that you were just riveted by? Well, I don't know about this Olympics. The the, the, the sport that we were watching a lot at home has been the skateboarding, which is new and mm-hmm. exciting. And yep. seeing the girls' competition just dominated by the uh, the youngsters. So that was pretty awesome to see. Uh, watching a lot of baseball, of course, and that's not really an obscure sport. But it's, I'm glad it's back at the Olympics. So it's been very mm-hmm. exciting to see that. Uh, and then one sport that's actually hasn't started yet, starting very soon, is rock climbing. I just noticed that's on the Olympic schedule for the first time. And there's rock climbing races, race to the top. I'm going to be watching that. I don't know about you guys, but that definitely sounds appealing to me. I think that, speed that rock, rock like, climbing would be uh, awesome. That sounds like something out of like American Ninja Warrior that they've imported mm-hmm. to the Olympics, <laughs> racing up a rock wall. That'll be pretty cool. 
I actually think, Jamie, when they were like, I saw a CBC article or an article on it on Twitter, they actually did, well, if you like American Ninja Warrior, it's not exactly the same, but this will be right up your alley. It has the most overlap of any Olympic sport with American Ninja Warrior. There you go. Greg, let's get the notes and quotes. Who's in the top six? Getting pucks out, getting pucks deep. Who's in the crease? Really none of your business. And who's in the press box? It's time for Notes and Quotes. Uh, Jamie, there's a couple of hockey notes and quotes coming in, but I did want to get quickly, just because we were talking about the Olympics, we'll just carry on with the Olympic theme. The Roundup while people were sleeping, Simone Biles, we talked about it earlier in the show, but if you're just tuning in, she competed for the first time at these Olympics. She was on the beam. She took home the bronze medal, her seventh Olympic medal overall. I think every other one she's won has been gold, which is pretty incredible. Incredible, in yeah. Canadian gymnast Ellie Black finished fourth in that event. Of course, she did have to pull out the overall because of an injury men's basketball quarterfinal. We didn't mention men's basketball. And every time I keep watching it, I keep thinking, oh, Canada should be there. Jeez, they should be there. Yeah. But the U.S. Did, did get by Spain in the quarterfinals. KD had 27 points. Slovenia beat Germany 94-70. And I point this one out because Luka Doncic, 20 points. He is a perfect 17-0 from playing for his country, Jamie. It's 17-0. not bad. Not bad. Pretty good player. Pretty good player, Luka Doncic. And it does feel like we could end up seeing... Uh, you know, him claim a medal at this. And he, mm-hmm. look, he's already one of the best players in the NBA, but he's doing even more at this tournament to kind of establish himself as one of the best players in the world. And it's not just him, too. Like, they have some very talented players. It helps to have him out there, but I was watching a little bit of their game, and they can they can put the ball in the hoop. Uh, sprinting, we love our sprinting. Two Canadians will be sprinting for gold in the men's 200-meter final at the Olympics. That race, actually, Jamie, you went, you and I and our listeners can get up at a very reasonable time because it's at 5.55 a.m. Pacific and 6.55 Mountain Time tomorrow morning. So just set your alarms a little bit earlier to get up and watch that live. Andre DeGrasse, he set a Canadian record and a personal best with a time of 19.73 seconds in the semifinal. Aaron Brown won his heat in 19.99. So two Canadian possibilities. I like that when you have extra possibilities for yes, gold exactly. for your country. I feel like this... I, I don't know who the other favorites are in the race. I'm sorry. Like, I can't point out Americans or Italians, like the one who won the 100 meter. But I feel like there's something with Andre DeGrasse in this one. I just don't know. I feel there's something just there with him. Well, as you said, you know, setting personal bests, finishing first in his heat. Those are really good signs if you're if you're hoping for him to finally get atop the podium in an event here at the Olympics. You know, obviously bronze in the 100 meters is an incredible accomplishment, but it does mm-hmm. seem, again, from a, a layperson's perspective here, it does seem like it's setting up well uh, for him to challenge for gold at this event. Massive upset on the sand. Uh, I've told you how I've been watching beach volleyball whenever I can. Obviously watching the Canadians, Sarah Pavin and Melissa Humana Paradis were the number one overall seed. They they were defending, sorry, world championships in 2019. They lost in the quarterfinals today. They were one of the predicted gold medals by the prognosticators going in, Jamie. To win this, they were a massive favorite, but they lost in three sets to the Australians. Uh, they were crying after in their uh, media availability. I can only imagine how raw it was to speak to the media right away. But that's one of the disappointments, unfortunately, for Canada. No medal coming out of beach volleyball. 
And it does feel like it's one of the the first major disappointments for, mm-hmm. for the Canadian team at this Olympics. You know, there's been other events in the pool where you thought, okay, maybe they get onto the podium here and, you know, you finish fourth or fifth instead. But as you said, this is the best team in the world, really. The number one ranked team in the world, the favorite for gold. So to not even get a chance to play for a medal is really, really tough, right? To not even get to that final four stage where you know you'll at least have a chance to fight for a spot on the podium. As you said, a lot of emotion from the two players. They know they missed a big opportunity. And yeah, again, probably the first major disappointment, mm-hmm. underachievement for, for Canada at these Olympics. I do want to point out the other Canadian duo, Heather Bainsley and Brandy Wilkerson. They lost in two sets to one to the Latvian duo. If the two Canadians had won, they would have played in the semifinals and we would have been guaranteed a medal. So unfortunately, no medal on the beach. Coming up later tonight, I mentioned the fact, or tomorrow morning, I mentioned the fact that uh, we get to see the men's 200 meters. Women's golf gets underway, and that's a... 3.30 Pacific this afternoon, 4.30 Mountain Time. Brooke Henderson and Elena Sharp representing Canada. Did you see any of the men's at all, Jamie? No, I didn't. It's yeah. tough. For whatever reason, Olympic golf has never hooked me, right? Because there's so many other sports that you don't get to see on a year-round basis. I mean, look, if it's the only thing on, then sure. But mm-hmm. other than that, it's tough for me to get too invested in Olympic golf. Well, I think about it like this. It's just there's no tradition, right? Like, you think of the Open Championship and the 149th Open Championship and the U.S. Open and the Masters and all these other tournaments. And Olympic golf came in just last year, came back after just this last year, or last Olympics, sorry. Um, And I remember in Rio, so many golfers pulling out and not participating, even though they would have been tops for their country. Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, even though he did participate in this one because – it interfered too much with their schedule and they didn't want it to interfere with them playing for the money events, you know? So it kind of just has a little lackluster for me for the women. Like, Hey, Brooke Anderson wins gold. I'll be cheering on watching her. But I do think when it comes to the men's side of thing, it's just like the way that they, the athletes viewed it the last time in Rio, it kind of soured me on it. It lacks prestige. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and again, with golf, there are so many other events that have that prestige that you know the athletes themselves, the competitors themselves, treat as a bigger deal than the Olympics, right? Just the fact that all, so many of these top golfers aren't willing to disrupt their schedules and go and go at play at the Olympics, it shows you what they think of. They're kind of sending you a signal like, okay, yeah, it would be cool to win a, a gold medal or a medal of any sort at the Olympics, but that's not what I'm really focused on, right? So yes. it makes it a little more difficult as a fan to get too invested in it. And before we get the text messages in, yes, a lot of the world top golfers did show up this time around. But uh, it just, like you said, just doesn't have the prestige. Men's decathlon, Canadian Damian Warner set to get underway. He won bronze in Rio, won bronze in the Worlds in 2019. He won the gold in the Pan Am Games in 2019. He is a medal favorite for Canada. Jamie, I like the decathlon because it shows the versatility of the athletes. The women do the heptathlon and the men's do the yeah. decathlon. And it's I find it just fascinating to see how good these athletes can be at just so many different de- disciplines. I love the decathlon. Such a cool event. It's up there with, you know, we always talk about the 100 meters as kind of the defining athletic competition, right? Just pure, mm-hmm. okay, run as fast as you can to this point in as little time as you can, right? And it just kind of, it perfectly captures the spirit of athletic competition. I think the decathlon is right there as well, right? Okay, show show us how well-rounded of an athlete you can be. And I think there there's kind of a tradition of, 
you know, that's fallen away a little bit over the years, but there's kind of a mm-hmm. tradition of anointing the decathlon gold medalist, you know, the greatest athlete in the world, right? Because yes. holy cow, you can do all of these different things really, really well. So I think, again, up there with the 100 meters, the decathlon really captures the Olympic spirit to me, right? Where it's just pure mm-hmm. athletic competition. And again, to see these people be able to perform all of these different events at such a high level is incredible. So again, Canadian Damien Warner, he is a medal favorite in this one. So you can watch him starting tonight. I believe it's five events today, five events the next day, or it could be wrong. It could be over three-day span. Damien, there is some NHL news out there. No, it's not Jack Eichel being traded from the Buffalo Sabres, but John Tortorella is back in the booth. Aaron Portsline tweeting out that the former Columbus Blue Jackets head coach has been hired by ESPN to work as a studio analyst beginning this fall. My question is to you, Jamie, is he going to be as mild-mannered as he was when he worked when TSN <laughs> had the rights before? I mean, I would I would guess yes, right? There, we always hope that when a, a fiery former player or coach gets on to, you know, to an NHL broadcast that there's going to be immediate fireworks, and it doesn't always work that way, right? Because... I think a lot of these guys come into these jobs and they feel a sense of of duty to kind of be a little gentler on, on the guys that they know still in the league than maybe someone who's never played like you or I would, right? We, we have less compunction about going out mm-hmm. there and saying, hey, this player did really poorly today. So I don't know. I mean, I, I get why everyone's excited, but we did get a sneak preview of this and it was not the fired up, oh my goodness, I can't believe he just said that, John Tortorella, that a lot of people are expecting. Now, maybe ESPN tries to coach that out of him, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they take a different path and, and they say, look, this is what we're going for. We really want you to be bold. We want you to be aggressive. But I think at least at first, it's going to be more of the same from what we've already seen from John Tortorella in this role. Well, I remember we had this discussion when TNT and ESPN got the rights for the NHL, and it was... I think we had David Amber on. He said he's done NHL in both the U.S. and Canada. In Canada, you know, it's a little bit more breaking down the X's and O's in intermissions and stuff. And in the U.S., it's just more generalized and about the personalities. I will say if John Tortorella does not want to have another coaching job in the NHL, I think we might see a little bit more fiery torts. I honestly do. If he's comfortable making the full-time transition and, you know, willing to burn some bridges, as it were, then, yeah, we could get some fireworks. Uh, One more thing to come out, and I just saw this come into our rundown. The NHL apparently unable to get expanded media rights for the 2022 Winter Olympics, which does mean, just like 2010, the NHL cannot use any highlights on air or on the web from their players playing in the Olympics. Jamie, tell me it's not so. It's a tough blow, and it's a tough blow in particular if you're, you know, crossing your fingers that the NHL is going to be allowed to go to the, or is, is going to decide to go Uh, to these Olympics coming up next year. It's just, man, I know the IOC, they're very committed to owning their their rights, right? They, Mm -hmm. they, They take that so seriously, but... My goodness, can't you just make a, have a little bit of flexibility to make sure you have the best players in the sport actually there representing their countries at the Olympics? I don't know. The IOC is just, they're such a baffling organization. Well, and to grow your game, like to see, if we could see, we, we can still never see unless you go and have a YouTube grab from someone who recorded it on their phone from the TV. Like we still never seen the Golden Goal by Chris Sidney Crosby. Uh, you can't hear the call from um, Chris Cuthbert. Like, it's one of the more iconic calls, and you can't have that. Right. And then to think about the fact that anything that could happen in these Olympics leading up that we can't see it again, it just, it strikes me as a little, 
I know it's all about money, but it strikes me as a little. It's short-sighted, right? Yeah, short-sighted. Okay, yeah, yeah. You, you, you retain control over them in the near term, but in the long term, you're making it harder for people to appreciate the product, and you're also making it – you're watering – if that's what causes the NHL to keep its players home, then you are watering down the hockey tournament at those next Olympics, right? Because we all remember the last time in 2018 when it was staged – no, not a lot of people were that invested in in the oh. ice hockey tournament that year. Not nearly to the degree they would be in a normal year because NHL players weren't there. So, really, I mean, this is the IOC shooting itself in the foot to a certain extent. Who? It was the Russia Olympic Committee, but I don't think it was even called that at the. It was, I think uh, it was the Olympic, Olympic athletes Rush. from Russia, yes, I believe. Right, and they won the gold, beating yep. Germ- Germany. That's right. Yep. And Canada, did they get? Bronze I want to say bronze, bronze, but I I could be wrong about that. I don't even know. That. I, I don't, don't even know. know. Like we could go back to all the other Olympics, and generally speaking, it's because Canada's won. So that's why I can say I know the, who won these games. But you go back, and if the Canadian athletes or not Canadian, the NHL athletes aren't there, I still think when the big hurdle was crossed with getting um, insurance and COVID insurance for the NHL players, that that's likely to still happen. They've released the NHL schedule with the Olympic break in it. I do think it is going to, because I think the NHL realizes that in good faith, they promise this in the CBA for extending the CBA coming out of the COVID season. And I think if you look at this and what could happen if they don't go, I'm not saying there's going to be a lockout or a, or a strike by the players, but I just think when it comes back to renegotiating the CBA, whenever that is, there could be a little bit of ill will if the NHL doesn't figure out a way to make this happen. Well, and you, we know how much it means to the players. It's incredibly yes. important to the players, understandably so, to have the chance to go and represent your country. So yes, this is not a death knell for the chances of the NHL players going to the Olympics, but it's still frustrating to see. Okay, Jamie, three hours in the books. One more to go for the Vancouver side of thing. Calgary, that's us. That's it for us today. Turning it over to the big show with Pat Steinberg and Will Nolt. We will join you back in Calgary tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock Mountain Time. Vancouver, stay tuned. We're back for one more hour. Donovan Bennett will join us at the bottom of the hour to recap that busy free agency in the NBA we talked about. We'll also dive into the disappointment of the Canadian women's basketball team at the Olympics. And we have a special last-minute guest, Jamie Alexiak, Kraken defenseman, is going to join us next. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Now back to Rintoul and Sermon. Yes, Rintoul and Sermon, Karen Sermon and Jamie Dodd coming with you for one final hour of the program here on 650-650. Text us. Do you have any questions for Jamie Alexiak? Maybe about how incredibly athletic and gifted his sister is, and I enjoy watching her so much. Penny Alexiak in the pool Jamie, the first thing when I was watching Penny perform in the pool and become the most decorated Canadian athlete in the Olympic Games was, what's going to happen in Paris? Like, because of her age. Like, she is only 21 right now. So you think of three years from now and she becomes 24. It's like, I don't want to put expectations on her or this Canadian swimming team because we saw what all the other Canadian women did as well. But it's just like, I just get really excited thinking about, okay, like, this is not over yet. No, not by a long shot it isn't. And, I mean, she's already set Canadian records, right? She just She'll have a chance to pad those totals as well. And we're going to be joined by her brother, Jamie Alexiak, of course, NHL defenseman, Seattle Kraken. He signed that UFA contract. He and Adam Larson were, I think, the first Frank Sorrell Valley um, teased 
Yeah. On the expansion draft day, of course, he signed that five years, four point six per million dollar contract, twenty three uh, million overall. Got a nice little no move clause as well too, Jamie, for the first three years, modified for the second or the last two. So he does control a lot of his uh, future going forward. I, I'm really interested to ask him kind of what the how the whole experience went down from, you know, the what is it? The, it's the legal tampering, but the, the freeze period right. where the yeah, Kraken and were and able to exactly, speak yeah. specifically to the UFAs on other teams. You know, like how long did this negotiation take place and what what the day was like? Because we saw him, he was one of the guys that the Kraken touted out and trotted out on opening day, there, opening day, expansion day. Yeah, and, you know, it's been a big month overall for, for Jamie Alexiak and the Alexiak family. Lots of good news coming their way over the last few weeks. Yes, apparently they're gonna they're gonna swim. They're gonna do a competition. I hear, I have to I hear ask that. Jamie yeah. about this and see what he expects to happen. He did say too. He started to. He's a late bloomer to swimming, and he's gonna. He started incorporating that into his training. So I want to ask about that and how it's gonna help him out. But yes, the Alexiak family has some incredible athletic genes. I think it's. Uh, oh, it's so much fun watching her in the pool, and of course Jamie on the ice as well. But just for Penny, it's just. Every time she's out there, I just get these excitement nerves that something great is just going to happen. Yeah, it does have that feeling, right? And, yeah, we've talked about this a little bit over the course of the Olympics, but it's also been great to see, I think, a little bit more of her personality shine through Mm -hmm. uh, at these games. And even just on Twitter today, I saw, you know, she's out there posting, hey, I had this teacher in elementary school who told me to stop swimming and and focus on school instead. And I'm just thinking about them today and for Mm -hmm. no reason. And it's great to see that little bit of extra confidence and swagger from Penny Alexiak. Well, it's she she might have got a little pushback by it because I think her next tweet was she disqualified by saying I had some great teachers. But she, you know what? We always have that one person that you could probably point to that's motivated you somehow, some yeah. way, somehow. And for Penny, that was that one teacher that told her to give up the li- uh, swimming. I'm so glad she didn't, but I'm so glad we're also joined by her brother now, Jamie Alexiak, defenseman for the Seattle Kraken. Jamie, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing today? We are doing fantastic. Thank you. Are, are you calling us from Seattle, Dallas? Are you back in Canada? Where are you these days? No, I'm in Toronto right now. Uh, okay, you I'll are. I'll be back in Seattle in September, but yeah, I'm just spending my summer here training. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about your training and about joining the, cra- the Kraken organization, about your time in Dallas, but I'm going to start with your sister, if that's okay. Um, have you been staying up late to watch uh, Penny race overseas in Tokyo? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've had a few family get-togethers to, you know, watch her. And obviously, we like to like to have been in Japan. But, you know, there was a – my parents were screaming at the TV. There was a lot of energy <laughs> at our house just watching it. And, she, you know, she did so well. So it was, uh, it was stressful, but I'm glad uh, we got a chance to watch her. You say stressful, but, like, for me, I'm watching her – I've never met your sister, but it's just, I get this excitement watching her because I know I'm about to maybe watch something great. And usually that happens with your sister in the pool. Is there nervousness for you? Is it just stress? Can there be a little excitement? Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's a roller coaster of emotions, especially, you know, I feel like a lot of these these races pennies in, I mean, she like hits a turn and she's in fifth and then she's in a race for, you know, meddling on the way back in the last, you know, 10, 15 meters. So it's, it's, it's definitely stressful watching her a bit and, you know, a lot of excitement as well. And it's just been a roller coaster of emotions. When she won that last medal in the relay, she had a comment after when she became the most decorated Canadian athlete. She said, I wouldn't, I'm so happy I did it as a group with these girls versus individually. What does that speak about your sister? 
I think just how much she's matured over the years. I mean, you know, she's only 21, but, you know, I've seen her doing the interviews and, you know, I'm really impressed with how she, how she does it and, you know, how confident she is in herself and, and her teammates and, you know, just her mentality with everything. I, th- I think it really speaks to just how well she's handled all this, all this pressure through the years. You know, I think she's, she's definitely mature for an age and she's, uh, she's special. And, and Jamie, I've been really impressed with exactly what you're saying as well, that confidence and that maturity that she's showing, not just in the pool, but when she's talking to the media afterwards. And as you mentioned, the, when you have the spotlight as an Olympian like she does, after, and she did after Rio, there's so much pressure that comes along with it. And she actually had to step away from the sport for a little bit in 2018 for her to be able to come back to the sport and then again turn in an incredible performance at these games, I know you're always going to be proud of your sister, given what she's accomplishing. But does it does it give you just a little bit extra bit of pride that you know how much pressure she is dealing with on a on a consistent basis? Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure it was a pretty you know vindicating experience for her. I mean, there's a lot of people saying that you know maybe she was kind of one and done, or you know maybe she couldn't repeat it. And you know, four years is a long time to really keep that momentum. So. You know, for her to do what she did in, in Japan, I think it silenced a lot of those doubts, you know, both outside and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sure for herself, it was just incredible to be able to to accomplish that. And, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm just really proud of her. And you know, I think she's uh, she's once in a generation kind of athlete, you know. So now that, you know, your sister can can call herself the the most decorated Canadian Olympic athlete of all time. I mean, I know, you know, you obviously both incredible athletes. I'm imagining there's a little bit of sense of friendly competition there. Do you feel a little extra pressure to go out and have a big year in the NHL to, to get some of those bragging rights back, back a little bit? Uh, you know, not so much. We keep it pretty friendly, like you said. And when we're together, she's still my little sister. You know, I still give her a hard time and I make sure that her head doesn't get too big. You know, I, I keep it pretty humble. But, um, yeah, we, we like to keep it loose with all me and all my siblings and, yeah, you know, I'm excited to definitely get the season going, but I'm. I, I, it's going to be hard to kind of compete with what she just did. That's for sure. <laughs> I, is there gonna? I hear there's a race or something that might be happening between the two of you. Uh, yeah, that. Yeah, I said that earlier, and it's kind of blown up. So I guess we kind of have to arrange something. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure the cottage will pop in the pool, and like I said, she'll have to you know wear a weighted weight vest or something racing me because. <laughs> we got to try and even the playing field a little bit. You mentioned too, Jamie, that you've incorporated swimming into your training. How do you think that's going to help you uh, going forward? Uh, you know, I, mean, I think just being an athlete, you kind of have to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. I think, you know, whenever you try something different, it, it trains different muscles. And it was just, you know, I, I've something I wanted to give a go. And I've never been a great swimmer. And I kind of wanted to do something that, you know, improve on my weaknesses. And like I said, you know, get out of the monotony of doing the same thing over and over again, because then you just train those muscles. And I think if you kind of get out of the comfort zone, you train, uh, train new muscles and it stimulates the brain a little bit. So that's kind of my goal going into the swim training. We're speaking with Jamie Alexiak, Kraken defenseman, played the last three seasons in Dallas. Before we get to what it was like, um, the whole expansion process and signing with the Seattle Kraken, what was your time like with the Dallas Stars? It was fantastic. I mean, I've been there for so long and, you know, I've known so many of those guys there and people in the organization and they always treated me very well. And, you know, the fans as well. I mean, it was always, you know, you wouldn't think hockey would be big in Dallas so much, but I mean, we always had a great turnout and, you know, there was always a lot of energy in the rink and, 
obviously going in that playoff run in the bubble there with Dallas and losing to Tampa was it was tough, but you know something I'll never forget. So uh, I'm appreciative of the opportunity to play there, and you know I like to think that I'm still buddies with all those guys, and you know wishing the best down the road. Jamie, with the expansion draft process, you were in a bit of a unique situation because you were a UFA, so you you had some say over whether or not you would end up in Seattle, and you end up signing the deal with them to join the expansion franchise. You know, before they had actually reached out and you knew you were going to be an unrestricted free agent, did you, was Seattle high on your list of potential destinations? Were you considering it or was it a little bit of a surprise when they made contact and expressed interest in you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's hard not to think about potentially playing in Seattle. I mean, I'd, I'd never been there and, you know, I, I thought it was an interesting prospect. And um, I think when the season ended, I didn't have any expectations that I'd be going there, but, you know, I, you know, I always thought that it would have been a cool place to play, especially just in the situation, right? Playing an expansion team and things worked out how they did. And I'm I'm glad I'm going to be going there now. And I think, you know, hockey's overdue in Seattle. I mean, the energy from fans is, is, it looks incredible. How did they sell you on the idea? How did they pitch you on the idea of joining the Kraken? As you say, look, Seattle is a, is a great town and the, the fans there are going to be incredible. And as you say, there's a there's an inherently interesting you know factor about playing for an expansion team. But what was their message to you about the direction of the team and and the part the role they wanted you to play in that direction? Um, I mean, I think it was just a big thing was how much you know they're putting into the team in terms of resources and developing the players, and also just making sure that you know all the facilities are going to be great. I mean, everything's going to be top notch there. It's all brand new, so you know. Combine that with it being an expansion team and, you know, the whole experience of being in Seattle and whatnot, I, I think it was just too too good of an opportunity to pass up on. You know, I think it's going to be a, a desirable place to play for a lot of guys down the road. We're speaking with Jamie Alexia, Kraken defenseman. Jamie, what was the day like and how did the whole situation come about that Ron Francis brought you in to be there on the day of the expansion draft? I know Jordan Eberle said he had to... Um, register at a hotel under a different name so that no one knew he was there how did that all come about yeah that was that was a crazy day um yeah i mean i i had the deal done you know probably by nine you know o'clock at night or whatnot and then it was kind of like okay you got to go get a covid test because you got to be on a plane at eight in the morning the next day so me scrambling for a covid test and uh kind of figuring out what I need to pack for Seattle, which was a, was a nightmare too, because you always hear about the, the rain and whatnot. Luckily it was, it was beautiful there, but um, hopped on a flight to Seattle and then was there, you know, that afternoon, the following day. And uh, I mean, there's obviously a whole bunch of media events and, you know, they were trying to keep it very hush hush and um, you know, every, everyone else kind of saw the rest of it. I mean, the draft was great and, like I said, it was it was really nice first experience of the city of Seattle, and I, I think it was uh, you know a lot of excitement in general. Were you a little disappointed that it kind of got before the actual expansion draft because we kind of basically knew the entire team prior to the actual event? Um, I mean, I wasn't too disappointed. You know, I was just happy to be playing for the Kraken, but I'm sure people in the organization probably didn't like it so much. I mean, they did they you know definitely wanted to make it a a surprise event but um me personally i mean i was just happy to be there and kind of soaking it all in and you know that sucks because you know they put a lot of work into it but you know here we are have you spoken with your head coach dave haxtell and kind of like what are those conversations been like 
Yeah, I mean, we've, we've just spoken briefly. Um, at this point of the summer, I think it's just guys are grinding training right now, and we'll be back in September. But, um, yeah, we just had a couple brief conversations, checking in, seeing how things are. And, you know, he congratulated my sister and whatnot. So, um, for the most part now, I think everyone's doing the same thing. They're just gearing up for the season. Have you got a chance to, I'm sure you know plenty of the guys who joined you on the expansion roster as well, you know, from, from different stops around the NHL. Have you had a chance to kind of check in with a few of them? I imagine it's a pretty excited excited group uh, getting ready to get going here in September. Yeah, I mean, just talking with guys at the expansion draft and, and a little bit after, I think everyone's, you know, it's just going to be such a new experience. And I think everyone's excited for camp, getting to know each other and, you know, we got a we had a great group of guys there at the draft, and I'm excited to meet everyone else. And uh, I think it's going to be a big opportunity for everyone else coming in. Do you feel? I mean, we all know what the last expansion team did in their first year, right, in Vegas, going all the way to the Stanley Cup final. Do you feel a little bit of that pressure to go out, not necessarily to make the Stanley Cup final, of course, but to be a, a legitimate competitive playoff team right away, given what the last expansion franchise did? I, I mean, I think everyone coming in our goal is to to win as much as possible you know i don't think we're really comparing ourselves to vegas i mean it's just a it's a completely different situation and you know different circumstances and whatnot but you know i think you know we all want to win and we're all going to do what we can to help the team win and um you know like i said i think seattle's really really hungry for hockey and we want to make sure they put a good product in the ice so um yeah just speaking for myself i'm i'm my goal is to come in and and, and win and uh, it's hard to compare with Vegas did because obviously they had a lot of success, but you know, I think, like I said, it's, it's a whole unique situation. Jamie, you've experienced a couple of unique situations over the past couple of seasons, obviously the bubble and the run to the Stanley cup final. And then last year with the, just playing within your division and the restrictions that came with COVID-19. I know Dallas, I think, did you have fans right from the beginning of the season, Jamie? Uh, sorry, say that again. What was the last part of that? Did you have fans in Dallas right at the beginning of the season, or did it take a couple of games? Um, it took a couple of games. I mean, okay. you know, everyone wanted to be be safe and whatnot. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, we we definitely had a a uh, pretty tough start to the season in Dallas. I mean, with yeah. the COVID and the snowstorm there too, and injuries oh, and whatnot. Right. It was it was tough, but that's part of the job, right? How excited, though, are you to just kind of get back to just a normal NHL season? I'm pumped. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure everyone is. Obviously, the bubble, you know, it's it was, a, it was a difficult experience for a lot of guys being away from their families and whatnot. And, you know, I'm glad we got it done. And last year, too, it was, again, it was kind of a weird season with, you know, all the restrictions and having to travel and, whatnot so I think everyone's ready to just kind of get back into a regular swing of things and have not such a condensed schedule and whatnot well Jamie thank you so much for taking time out of your summer joining us uh, for just a little bit congratulations on the new deal in Seattle and congratulations to you and your family and your sister on her becoming the most decorated Canadian Olympic athlete not a problem appreciate it guys have a good one you as well Jamie 
That's Jamie Alexia, Kraken defenseman, uh, signed that pretty nice deal uh, this offseason, yep. Jamie, uh, with the five-year deal. He, Him and Adam Larson were the first one that Frank Cerevelli got out, and then, of course, his sister. You know, I, I'm sure I always, <laughs> always like, I wonder how much you should ask about Penny. I know he's very, obviously, very proud of his sister, but yeah. I'm like, got to talk a little bit about him, too. No, you, you do, obviously, but I, he understands. And I think he's I been know. every, you know, even going back to the Rio games, I think he's been very comfortable answering those questions about his sister, right? He understands mm-hmm. that there's there's a lot of respect and a lot of appreciation for what she does. But yes, we couldn't we couldn't bring him on and just talk about his sister. You got to get those <laughs> NHL questions in there, too. I did. I did like the fact that he said, you know, at the end of the day, she's still my little sister. Yeah. Right, like I can yeah. still ribber and have fun with her and and make fun and you know obviously these accomplishments are credible but probably keep her you know her head a little where yeah. it's supposed to be moving forward yeah this is where you are but yeah yeah do that good nice big brother stuff right keep yeah. her keep her in check a little bit yeah it's I look at the Seattle Kraken team and I you know we could get into the roster we won't right now but it's I, I still scratch my head quite a bit with what they're doing. They're not bringing Jamie in, obviously, d- defenseman that they hope to have for years down the road. Obviously, him and Adam Larson and a couple of other ones as well. But I just, I feel when I look at that expansion process, Ron Francis just didn't, I don't know how to explain it. It's very confusing for me still. It was a missed opportunity, I think. And, mm-hmm. you know, when people, I've noticed when you start to criticize the, the Kraken roster, people say, well, you know, everyone thought Vegas was going to be bad too. And I'm not saying Seattle's going to be a bad team. This year, they have pieces that can help make them competitive, right? You, you start on the blue line with Giordano and Alexiak and Larson. That's a really good uh, start to your de- de- defense. You have Chris Dreger and Philip Grubauer in the crease. So they have elements that can make them competitive this year. But, you know, if you were just to grade the expansion draft process, it's, it's a C plus, right? They didn't fail. Mm-hmm. It's not a flunk, but they didn't blow you away. And I think they just missed an opportunity where they had some unique leverage in the NHL. Mm-hmm. Not every team, obviously, gets to go through that process where you can really hold other teams' feet to the, feet to the fire, and they just didn't do much with it, right? They didn't well, do much with it. They had all this cap space. They go out and make a couple decent signings, but as we know, free agents' deals often go very, very poorly down the road, so and it's okay. It's fine. It's going to be a fine yeah. team, but they didn't blow you away. And you know what? I said when it first happened, we can't judge the book. It's like kind of like we got the prelogue and the first and second chapter. And they're not that exciting, but let's see what happens as this book progresses, this novel, and see what happens in September. I don't know what other moves, but I kind of, I guess we have to wait and, well, it's our job to speculate, but I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens in September and October when they take to the ice. We've got some breaking news coming in. We'll talk a little bit about it right now and with Donovan Bennett coming up. You mentioned this to me, Jamie. I don't know if you have it in front of you, but Seth Curry. I do. We talked about all the players with a lot of money. He cashed in. Steph Curry, so has signed. Oh, did I say four, Seth? Four, okay. four, no, it's all right. Don't worry. But if Seth got this money, though, that yeah, would be right? breaking news. But <laughs> Steph Curry has agreed to a four-year, $215 million contract extension with the Golden State Warriors. And the impressive thing, I mean, look, that's impressive. But the extra impressive thing is he is the first player in NBA history to sign two different $200 million deals in his career. So this is his second contract worth more than 200 million a four-year 215 million dollar contract extension uh, for Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors so I mean we were talking about Chris Paul's career earnings and what that number is going to be when all is said and done Steph is going to blow by him with this deal 
How old is Steph now? Is he like, I think he's what, 32, I want to say? I, I think he's right. a little older than that. I'll have to look it up really quick. Is he my here. age? Okay, sorry. This he's 33. Googling on the air. Great radio. Um, it's, I mean, so it takes him. And he's been healthy. He was healthy last year, year before that, not. And here's one of the reasons why I did ask about Chris Paul and, you know, running it back with Phoenix and how good will they be in the West? Because I think about this Golden State Warriors team. Their rookie, like his mind's from last year. It's off the top. I can't think of it right now. But he's going to be taking a next step. He was hurt towards the end of the season. He'll take a next step. You're hopefully getting Clay Thompson back, right, from that Achilles blow. And we don't know kind of how he'll react to that, specifically the fact the year before he tore his, you know, his ACL, and now he's got to come back from the Achilles. But I think Golden State's going to be good this year. I think the Lakers, who just signed Carmelo Anthony, of course, why not everybody go join LeBron in L.A.? Yeah. Because that's what they do. LeBron, bring everybody so they can try and win a championship. Good for Carmelo. But still, I'm just like, are you serious? He's going to sign in Los Angeles? Of course he is. Um, so I look at them. I look at Denver and Jamal Murray getting healthy and Nikola Jokic coming off the MVP season. I look at Denver and... You know, them, Donovan Mitchell being healthy through the entire season, and Rudy Gobert just re-upped with them, and maybe them taking another step. Like, I look at this Western Conference, and I think probably the Lakers are the favorite, because they always are, and the Clippers without Kawhi for the season. Like, how will that go? But I just, I wonder how this West is going to be won this year, because I don't expect the injuries that we had last season. Well, if you can get another vintage Steph Curry season, like we got for the most part last year, right, and you get a healthy Klay Thompson back, Mm-hmm. I think the West is pretty open. I, I agree that if, if LeBron and Anthony Davis are both healthy, yeah, the Lakers have to be the favorite. But outside of that, I mean, you know, Portland is in is in disarray. Yeah, Denver, but you don't look at them as unbeatable by any stretch. Mm-hmm. So if Steph Curry and Klay Thompson are both healthy and productive, yes, the Warriors absolutely have a shot in the Western Conference. Just want to announce, point this out too, because we might get to, get to it with uh, Donovan Bennett. The CFL has announced its policy. Uh, Jimmy for council games because of COVID-19 and it's ex- pretty much similar to the NFL. If a team cannot play because of COVID-19 issues, then they will forfeit the game and will be given a loss. If both teams can't play, then both teams will be handed a loss. I guess if both teams have an outbreak on their roster, then they'll both... Yeah, I, d- I don't know anything about forfeited paychecks for the other team because in the NFL, I believe if one team can't go, both teams have to forfeit their pay if I'm not Right, mistaken. I think that's so, correct. Yeah, we'll have to see how this goes. The CFL season is kicking off in two days in on Thursday in Winnipeg. So we're going to talk to Donovan Bennett next. That is coming up. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon on SportsCenter 650. You're listening to Rintoul and Sermon. Yes, you are. Rintoul and Sermon is with you until the next uh, about half an hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd in for Scott Rintoul. Jamie, I would like to let you know I will not be flying solo on Friday. I will not say who my host is, but we found somebody. So it's good. Very exciting. Congratulations. I'm sure the listeners will be happy and my voice will be happy um, with that (laughs) happening. We're going to speak with Donovan Bennett coming up here in a couple of minutes. Get into all this NBA free agency. I know a lot of people look at this and think, like, like it's just ridiculous, right? When you see NHL free agency and you see the contracts that say, is, I know AAV was down, but like a Zach Hyman gets, or even the deal that Conor McDavid is on, or Jack Eichel, Austin Matthews, like some of these massive contracts that are out there. Ovi just signed a five-year deal at 9.5 per per season. And then you've got Steph Curry at four years, two point, or sorry, two fifteen, two hundred and fifteen million million over four years. 
people need just need to remember i know it's bizarre but their contract deal with television is insane like it's two billion dollars oh, or something like control. that yeah so the money that they have to give these athletes these owner have to give these athletes is just so much more than the nhl also think of the fact their cap's a lot higher i think it's 112.4 million this year and the tax threshold, because they have the luxury tax that they can pay, which the NHL doesn't have, is $136.6 million. Plus, you've got the fact you only have to pay 12 players, and you're paying you know, some of these guys really nothing if they're like the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th player on their roster. You look at that deal that Steph Curry sold and or signed, and you know we don't know – I don't know the specifics of how it escalates year by year and all of that, but if you just divide that – by four, right? You're at something like, you know, $53, $54 million a season. Right now, the Ottawa Senators' projected cap hit for next year is <laughs> about $52 million, right? <laughs> now they have to get up to the salary cap floor, but we know if the way yes. that Ottawa likes to go after those those backloaded deals, right, where the cap number is higher than the actual salary. Yeah. I mean, Steph Curry might make more than the entire Ottawa Senators' roster this year. That's in, <laughs> in play. actual that, money. That's a possibility, yeah. <laughs> That is insane. Oh, my goodness. Yes, for those that just tuned in, four years, $250 million for Steph Curry on his latest contract. And as Jamie pointed out before the break, he'll be the first player to sign two $200-plus million contracts in his career. And to talk about that and more, we're joined right now by Sportsnet's Donovan Bennett. Donovan, good morning, good afternoon. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I, I'm good, thank you. I guess we're both in afternoon. It's 12.30 here and 3.30 out east, so I guess I should just say good afternoon. Before we get to all the stuff that went down yesterday, we just had the breaking news. Steph Curry signing four-year $215 million deal. Uh, it's a lot of money that they're giving him. Uh, is he one of the players, though, that's worth that money? I think so. I mean, he's a culture setter. He's an all-NBA player still. And not only is he not really tailing off he's getting better year over year i think his last season was his best season even though this is someone who has two mvps and an mvp it was his best season because he was asked to do so much because he didn't have much help around him but he also has a skill set that doesn't really age one of the benefits of steph curry is that he's not doing it certainly with his size he's doing it with his mind and his ability to have a quick release and to shoot the ball from length that we really haven't seen a player shoot from in the past. And so similarly to whether it's Ray Allen or Reggie Miller or his father, Del Curry, um, you know, you could project that he's continuing to do the types of things that he's doing well into uh, this four-year extension at $250 million. And it's just so funny how things come full circle. It's Steph Curry, will he be able to have a long career with those chronic ankle injuries maybe the Warriors can't invest in him. He's on a low-money deal because there's questions about his health. Well, that low-money deal allowed them to build a dynasty and a super team around him. When they won a championship, he was the eighth-highest-paid player on that team, uh, but they had the room to bring in Kevin Durant. And now, you know, not that far away from that period of time, he's someone who, in quick succession, signed two 200 plus million dollar deal so i i think it's good business for the warriors the question is will they be able to take advantage of that window with him at this high level of play given they've drafted three teenagers in the last two years and no longer have they been the bargain basement place where veterans go to try and chase the championship 
they've missed out on some cheap veterans and free agency as they've decided to go elsewhere. So it'll be interesting to see how they augment around Steph Curry now that they've got their leader locked up for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I wonder if they think Clay Thompson coming back is basically their free agent acquisition for next season. You talked about bargain basement veteran free agents. Carmelo Anthony is joining the Los Angeles Lakers on a one-year deal. They now got Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, healthy and and mellow. Do you see this working? I do. And, and they also added Malik Monk, which is a nice addition, not the pedigree and, and the star name, but Carmelo actually was really productive in Portland, and he's going to fit a very specific role. Place some stretch for give them some offense off the bench, someone who can create his own shot still at an advanced age and just give them some shooting. At the very least, Carmelo Anthony can still stand in the corner and hit a wide-open corner three. And when you look at the Lakers and you're trying to find a roadmap of how can they be beat, how can they lose four out of seven games in the playoffs given their talent, their top-level talent, one of the things is, will the lane get cramped because there isn't enough spacing and shooting around LeBron James and Anthony Davis? And Russell Westbrook, as great as he is, he's not solving that shooting issue. He's making mm-hmm. it worse. And the fact that the <laughs> Lakers lose Alex Caruso, that hurts them in that department even more so. Or Carmelo Anthony is going to add some spacing. When, when he's playing at the three or playing up at the four, he does provide that spacing. And the four is probably a position that it his age is best for LeBron James. It's what that team needs the most, but he doesn't really want to play it. And so Carmelo Anthony can eat up some minutes at the four. And, and just look at the fact they've got, in terms of three-point shooters last year, only had three that were above 40%. Marcus Sol, who doesn't take them unless he's wide open. Contavious uh, Caldwell-Pope, who won't be there. Alex Caruso, who won't be there. And then after that, it's Ben McLemore, 36%, won't be there. Kyle Kuzma, 36%, won't be there. LeBron James is still going to be there at 36%. But all of their later additions after Westbrook, Malik Monk, Carmelo Anthony, those are guys who are going to give them some shooting and spread the floor. So I do like the Melo signing in Los Angeles specifically. Donovan, I, th- I think you make a really good point about how well Carmelo, Carmelo Anthony has transitioned into being more of a role player after spending so long as as a ball-dominant scorer. The other acquisition, though, Russell Westbrook, is really interesting to me because do you think he's going to have to make a little bit of that same transition? Not to the same extent, right? They're still going to ask him to handle the ball a lot, but do you think he's going to have to significantly adjust his game to fit well next to LeBron James and Anthony Davis? Yeah, we've been calling for adaptations in his game for a long time. Can you guard for long stretches? Can you move off the ball? And he really hasn't. He's a brilliant player just because he competes so hard. But there are very simple changes he can make in his game to make himself a more efficient player in the modern-day NBA. One thing that people forget when they evaluate Russell Westbrook as a point guard is that him playing in the NBA is really the first time he's played point guard. He was a shooting guard for most of his life, including his time at UCLA. And yes, when they say starting point guard, Russell Westbrook is going to run onto the floor. But everyone knows on any team that LeBron James is on, he's virtually the point guard. He's going to make the decisions. He's going to have the ball in his hands running high pick and roll. So in a way, Westbrook at his advanced age 
goes back to a two-guard position and almost plays a role similar to what Dwayne Wade did beside LeBron James, where can I get out in transition and finish in the break? Certainly Westbrook can do that. Can I sneak in from the weak side and get putbacks and, and, and lobs when people aren't accounting for me and my athleticism? Surely Westbrook can do that. So some of the troubling decisions he made with the ball in his hand and the fact that he wasn't really a threat with the ball in his hand from three. So people were packing the paint, just waiting for him to drive or trying to steal some of the passing lanes will be less of an issue when LeBron is controlling the offense. The other thing that Westbrook does is he makes the Lakers a beast in terms of rebounding with Anthony Davis on the floor, with LeBron James on the floor and Westbrook, someone who's giving you 10 plus rebounds from your backcourt it's going to be tough to get second-shot opportunities against them, and they're going to have a lot of second-shot opportunities and double possessions there themselves. So I, I do think Westbrook, beside LeBron, he gives them more questions in terms of spacing, but he gives them certainly more athleticism, and I think there is a template for him to be successful, and it's similar to what Dwayne Wade did when LeBron played with him in Miami. We're in conversation with Sportsnet's Donovan Bennett here on Rintoul and Sermon, Sportsnet 650. Okay, Donovan, so the big news, obviously, in NBA free agency in Toronto, where you're located, is that Kyle Lowry is going on a sign-and-trade to the Miami Heat. What was your first reaction when you got news of this deal? Finally, Pat Rowley got his man. This is something that has been rumored, not just for a long time in this offseason, Remember, the last two times when Kyle Lowry was a free agent and obviously signed back with Toronto, the other heavy suitor was the Miami Heat. Pat Rowley has long been infatuated with him. And when you've got a good friend of Lowry's, and Jimmy Butler, who was trying to recruit Lowry to play with him in Minnesota, this makes sense. It's such a hard-nosed, tough, physical team. It's basically a team of pit bulls. And you add Lowry to the mix, and then after that you add P.J. Tucker to the mix, they're going to be playing old-school bad boys, Detroit Pistons-style basketball, mm -hmm. scores in the 80s or 70s or maybe 60s, opposite of what you see in the modern-day NBA. But Styles makes fights, and the fact that you're going to have a different style in the Eastern Conference, vying for supremacy with Brooklyn and with Milwaukee, and maybe we'll see what happens with Philly if they're able to move Ben Simmons, will make for some interesting storylines. But I think he's the perfect fit. Tough. If you're a Raptor fan, to see him go, you're starting to ask retroactively, well, could we have got more at the deadline than if we let this get to free agency? But Kyle Lowry put in a great shift in Toronto, changed the culture, brought a banner to Scotiabank Arena, and now he gets the opportunity to chase another banner at the age of 35, and he's being paid handsomely to do that. When he was in Tampa, being able to, one, not pay any state income tax, and two, get up and golf every day before and after practice, he got a glimpse of what life would be like if he played in Florida full-time, and I think he's going to enjoy ending his career in Miami. What do you think, Donovan? He is 35 years old. How much do you think he has left in his career? Well, he now is one of only four players age 35 or older to sign a contract worth 20 million annually. And then and Chris Paul adds to that list to, to make it five as Chris Paul's 36. LeBron, Kobe, Dirk, and Kyle and Chris. And he's done a real good job of working on his body. Remember some of the issues that we had with Kyle in the early days 
of him as a Raptor is that he'll get to the postseason, but what Kyle Lowry will be there, always the issues with the back or with the elbow. And that hasn't been as much of an issue the last two years, barring he was shut down early this year because the Raptors were playing for lottery positioning and not necessarily for the playoffs. And so in that heat culture where they ask veterans to take off a little bit of body fat, a little bit of weight uh, to preserve their careers and take the pounding off of their knees, I, I think he is in a prime position given he's been much more diligent with his body over the last couple of years to play well. And similar to Steph Curry, he's a guy where his mind is a big reason why he's an impactful player. The question, though, is he only plays one way, 100% throwing himself on the floor into the stands. And will that accrue over time for him so that the end of his career, he's not nearly as explosive as he was on the front end. But I think the comp for him is Chauncey Billups, someone who's going to play off the ball quite a bit. It's going to be a spot-up three-point shooter, give you great leadership as he ages, but not necessarily going to rely on physicality in the way that maybe a Steve Nash did when he started to have his health get away from him as a Los Angeles Laker. I still think because he has an ability to guard some bigger guards and he has a great catch-and-shoot game. He's going to be productive in that Miami system for a long time. We're speaking with Donovan Bennett from Sportsnet for a few more moments here on Rintoul and Sermon. How do you best describe Kyle Lowry's legacy in Toronto? Wow. If I had to use one word, it would be unlikely. I mean, not just because he struggled to find a home in his previous stops in the NBA. He struggled to find a home in Toronto. People now forget that he was in a timeshare with Jose Calderon for the starting point guard position. It was more often than not coming off the bench. I mean, we think of him now as this you know, poster boy for Adidas and uh, championship uh, you know, celebrations with him on the bus and the glasses and the trophy. But his original shoe sponsorship was Peak, not Adidas. He was not uh, you know, someone we were talking about in the Hall of Fame. We were talking about whether or not he was going to be able to stay in the league. And the deal that fell apart, thankfully now, sometimes the best deal is one that you don't make, had him going to the Knicks, and the only reason it didn't happen is because James Dolan was fleeced by Masai Jury so many times with the Carmelo Anthony trade and the Andrea Barnetti trade. He didn't want to get fleeced by him again. But Kyle has a heart-to-heart with Masai at the time, and Masai says, forget about your situation here. If you want to stay in the league and make generational money for you and your family, you have to do things differently. You could be mad at the world, but there's a reason why you haven't caught on with any of these teams. Kyle took that information, internalized it, used some self-assessment, and went on a string of becoming an all-star six years in a row after that, a third-team All-NBA player, and became the franchise leader in field goals, steals, assists, triple-doubles, everything other than scoring, which obviously goes to DeRozan. So his statue certainly will be of him taking the charge, but I think it's really the way he took charge of his career and owned his story and came out of the mud and really worked for everything uh, that he ended up earning because he wasn't certainly a, a chosen one. And the Raptors were about to choose somebody else if they had the chance. He was able to change the perception around him. And that's including his perception in the playoffs. For the first couple of years in Toronto, we talked about 
Lowry and DeRozan choking in the playoffs. When Kyle Lowry was last seen in the playoffs, he was the Raptors' best player, including game six of the finals when he, he starts it, owning the moment more so than even Kawhi Leonard. So I think how unlikely the story pans out just shows you that you never know where a franchise player is going to come from. Sometimes they're hiding in plain sight. From a Raptors perspective now that Kyle Lowry is officially making his departure, Donovan, you know, obviously there's the on-court element and how do you fill his minutes, but off the court, you mentioned earlier that he's played such an important role in changing the culture of that team. Do the Raptors have the right pieces in place to sustain that culture now that one of the big drivers of it, Kyle Lowry, is, is out the door? Well, you're not excited for the Sam Decker era to begin? In, uh, <laughs> I, I, I will say, I, I like Sam Decker coming out of Wisconsin, so I don't know what that says about me, but we'll see what he can do with Toronto. Yeah, well, he's much better now coming out of Europe than he was coming out of Wisconsin. But it, it's a great question. If you look over the last couple off-seasons, names and faces that have left the building. Obviously, Kawhi Leonard, but Serge Ibaka was certainly a presence. Marcus Ole in short stint was a leader in the locker room and norm powell understanding the grind was a big presence and now kyle so you you've got a bunch of players that have been in that uniform for a long time the faces of the franchise and so what's left is fred van Vliet, og ananobi pascal siakam if he is still in, in toronto and we saw that pascal stepping up and becoming part of that leadership council if you will of the team was a difficult transition for him he had some issues with coaching staff and and issues closing like games and so i really think this team in many ways becomes fred van vliet's team he's 27 years old i know he seems young but he was a four-year college player and he's literally learned at the feet of Kyle Lowry, so much so that when Fred was an undrafted rookie in training camp, just trying to beat Brady Heslop out for the last spot on the team, he was following Kyle Lowry around so much so that Kyle Lowry was annoyed of him, but then eventually respected him because he understood Fred was giving Lowry the utmost respect and wanting to model his game. I think Fred is getting to that place. But whether it's via free agency now or at the trade deadline, I expect more so than talent an infusion of another big personality to help lead the franchise. And I think that's ambiguous because even in the front office, who's going to lead it is somewhat unclear. We see Masai Jury in photos signing Gary Trent Jr., but we don't see is Masai Jury in photos signing his own contract. And the faces of the franchise for a long time have been Kyle Lowry on the court, Masai Jury in the front office. That might be entirely different if Masai decides that he's going to do something else with his time moving forward. So I think this is Fred's team right now, but I do expect that there is another move or two to make so that there is another force of personality amongst the 15th. Donovan, I want to thank you so much for your time again today. I do have a question that I'm going to save for next week. I want to talk to you about Canada women's basketball and the Olympics, but we'll we'll discuss that next week after the Olympics are over. Thank you so much, and uh, yeah, enjoy the week. We'll talk to you again next Monday, I guess. Well, hopefully I'll be able to celebrate Canada women's soccer when we talk mm-hmm. next week. Absolutely. And that will help me get over the disappointment <laughs> of Canada women's basketball. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks so much, Donovan. That was Donovan Bennett from sports that is always Jamie. I love talking to him because he's just so knowledgeable, especially on the NBA. I mean, so many sports, but I love his insight on the NBA. He made a good point about the Lakers. Like I was thinking, okay, well, 
they've got Russ and they've got LeBron and they've got AD and now Melo, but Melo defensively just isn't as good as he was back in the day, but that's okay because you do have Russ who's a pretty decent defender, I think. You've got AD to make up for that. But I do wonder about how Russell Westbrook will be able to change. I like how you asked that question because he's been a triple double guy, right? He has the ball yep. in his hands at all time and LeBron James doesn't let you do that. And Russell Westbrook has annoyed teammates in the past by being oh, yeah. so ball dominant, right? We, you know, the marriage in OKC between him and Kevin Durant, it ended poorly in part because he is so ball dominant. I, it's not going to fly in LA. He's going to have to change if he wants to succeed there. Maybe what he needs is that dominant personality of LeBron James. Jamie, appreciate your time today. Step it in for Scotty. Well, you'll be a great show all week. Let's My well, pleasure. we'll do it. We'll do it all week except for Friday, but that's okay. Except I for understand. Friday. <laughs> I understand. We're back at it tomorrow, though. Yes, we are. Uh, thanks so much to Greg Ballack back at Mission Control. Great job as always, Greg. Raja, Raja Shergill. Raja, great show today. Five guests. I think that's a record. You might be up for producer of the year with that one. Five guests on the show. Jamie, take note. Uh, and Jamie, as always, thank you so much for filling in. Up next is Bick and the Boss. I think it's just the boss today, but I guess you'll have to find out on the other side. Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to Rintoul and Sermon with Jamie Dodd on Sportsnet 650.